Welcome to Eminent Americans. I'm Daniel Oppenheimer. It would be very easy to hate Ezra Klein. He's only 38, and he already has been a pioneering political blogger, a pioneering explanatory journalist for The Washington Post, the founder of Vox.com, the author of the best-selling book, Why We're Polarized, and now a marquee podcaster and columnist for The New York Times. The amount of good fortune that's come his way is frankly staggering. Not just journalistic and political good fortune, but personal good fortune. He's good-looking. His wife, Annie Lowry, is a successful journalist with a national profile. Presumably their two kids, whose names are presumably Leo and Daisy, are good-looking and brilliant. He's even rather tall, and I find this hard to believe. It's possible that it's inaccurate, but the internet does say that he's 6'2". Klein is, in other words, an American prince, and I should hate him just on general principle, but I don't. He is so earnest and so hardworking and diligent and thoughtful and, frankly, just smart. His podcast, which I listen to pretty regularly, is excellent. He's incredibly sharp, in particular, about politics and power, but he's also just omni-curious. There are a lot of political types on the show, but also philosophers, scientists, novelists, historians, economists, tech types, you name it. He seems kind of interested in everything. I say all that not to suck up to Klein, but to try to pin down what's interesting about him, which is actually rather elusive. He's super smart, but unlike his good friend and fellow Vox co-founder Matt Iglesias, He's not super smart in a particularly interesting way. He has been a pathbreaker in the form of his journalism at various points, but it would be hard to identify what particular ideas Klein has been influential in articulating or promulgating. The big idea with Vox was that it would revolutionize how journalism was done, how it provides background and context. Frankly, that was kind of a bust. It didn't do that. His recent book on political polarization sold well and was buzzy for a little while, but I don't see much evidence that its thesis has had any staying power. I don't even remember its thesis. As a thinker, he always strikes me as living in a relatively narrow band somewhere toward the center of wherever the progressive consensus is. So why does he seem so central to it all and so representative of something? What I want to do on this episode is trace Klein as he molds himself into a few different things. First, starting in college, a punchy political blogger. The problem, the problem with health reform in this country is that there's a paradox at the center of all public opinion. Then he transforms into this omniscient explainer of the world at the Washington Post and at Vox. To be affordable, health insurance needs a lot of healthy people for every sick person. What is this John Banner lawsuit? There's a problem with Neil Gorsuch's nomination for the Supreme Court, and it's actually not Neil Gorsuch. And then he transforms again into who he is now, a kind of more humble and more chill persona, and maybe a better, maybe not a better version of himself. I'm Ezra Klein. This is The Ezra Klein Show. And we're going to look at how he's been a a symbol, but maybe also a driver of broader trends in journalism and media the whole time. To dive into these questions, I'm going to bring in my two guests, Matt Welch, who is the author of The Greatest of All Ezra Klein Profiles, which we'll touch on, and Mark Oppenheimer, my brother and longtime comrade in arms when it comes to parsing the American intellectual scene. Matt is an editor-at-large for Reason Magazine and one of the hosts of the Fifth Column podcast, which is hilarious and great. Mark is a senior editor for Tablet Magazine and the author of various books on religion and American culture. Matt and Mark, welcome to Eminent Americans. Thank you. I'm just honored to be part of the family. It's uh, (laughs) it's fantastic. Matt, I wanted to start with you and with a line I really enjoyed from your profile of Klein. I don't know if you remember writing this, but, but the line is, 
He's impossibly young, infuriatingly accomplished, and impressively wonky in a town full of journalistic flop sweat. He glides instead of glistens. <laughs> and I have two questions related to that. So ha- how happy with yourself were you when you wrote the line? <laughs> the other question is what prompted the profile? You were editor-in-chief at Reason at the time, and I'm curious why you needed to slum for the Columbia Journalism Review to profile this guy who was like 11 at the time. <laughs> Wer- weren't you too important for that? The Columbia Journalism Review is uh, traditionally has been a place of high honor in uh, the world of journalism. and they saw Klein's star rising and they're trying to figure him out. Back then, it's hard to kind of imagine it now because we've assimilated new media in the way that we think about media. It just it, everything is new media. Back in the day, he was this weird creature because he came from other avenues. He was more self-created. CJR associated me with new media. I think the first thing that I wrote for them was about like the rise of blogs after September 11th. So they figured that I could have some insight. So it wasn't that I was sitting around in the corner obsessing about Ezra Klein. I wasn't. He was in my world. So they asked me to look at him more closely. And he's from California, as I am, too. So I was aware of him in his blogging days when he was out there, like, talking about everybody's healthcare system all across the world in the kind of run up to Democrats overhauling the healthcare system. Of, yes, I would, I would like to sign the insurance companies out of existence with my pen. It would be sweet, but it has never happened in the history of this country that we have signed a multi-billion dollar industry out in one shot. I was aware of him, and that's why I went into it. And then and in the process of it, came to appreciate what his rise said about the fate of the New Republic magazine. Because literally everybody he was patterned after, or, or the stock character that he played, which we've had in American journalism for a while, which is like the really good-looking, handsome Washington, New York character who can kind of clean up and explain to you the world had always worked for the New Republic. He uh, worked in opposition to the New Republic and was the signal that the New Republic didn't matter anymore. And in fact, it hasn't, I think, since his rise. And he's part of that story. So that's that was my initial interest in Ezra Klein. And I should just say at the outset of a podcast about Ezra Klein that, uh, you know, I, I appreciate his hard work and success and, and don't begrudge it even an inch. You had to say that before you got into all of the things that were wrong about him and all the things he is symptomatic of. Yes. Just trying to think of this in the larger ecosystem. The New Republic has been through a lot of iterations in the past 10 or 15 years. And I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of where it was in 2012, because there, there's sort of two things that happened. There's one, which is the migration of the energy to some of these, you know, what were then called new media perspectives. But the other one is just a profound sort of revolution in the, in the sort of political perspective of the New Republic, I think, as a result of ownership changes. Do you remember where it was? So, so this is 2012. Was that post-Marty Peretz? Right around that time, Marty Peretz got rid of it. So Marty Peretz, for those who aren't close followers of the New Republic, he was and is basically a neocon. He's a neoconservative, a super hawkish Zionist. The New Republic was always like the liberal hawks magazine. They drew a lot of energy from the Washington Monthly, which I think was truly one of the most interesting magazines, political magazines that we have seen over the last uh, half century in the when it rose in the seventies under Charlie Peters because it was a um, a left wing critique of liberalism by the early aughts you would always use the phrase even the New Republic right because always the New Republic 
would be the magazine to say, well, actually, we should go to war in Iraq. It had been this kind of handmaiden to power. It was a whisperer to power from its inception. And so forever, if you were the smart young thing in journalism and could clean up in front of, of audiences and parties, you would go to the New Republic. Ezra Klein came up as a blogger. He didn't go to Harvard or Yale. He went to, I think, UC Irvine, Santa Cruz or something. And he made his name while he was still an undergraduate, as did his comrade, Matthew Iglesias. And uh, they came of an age when the New Republic was a sneer word under Marty Peretz. And so the contrarianness that Marty Peretz embodied in, in some of his own personal beliefs, the instinct to intellectually challenge what our team should believe in made for good journalism, as it did at the Washington Monthly back in the day. And actually, one of the first indications of where Ezra Klein was going and where that sense of contrarianism was going was Ezra Klein sat down with Charles Peters. It was like Ezra giving the old man a talking to. He sat him down and, and said, don't you think that you made a mistake in giving ammunition to the right to criticize the left? And it was really like uh, two ships passing in the night. And Charlie Peters was a little bit kind of defensive about it. And this is why I've always seen Ezra Klein as, um, uh, if nothing else, like a really, he's always going to be the person who tells you where left of center journalism is going. He absolutely reflected the zeitgeist at that time of where lefty bloggers and, and journal opinion writers were going. They felt like, no, you have to stop that kind of contrarianism. And just think now of the people who are left of center and considered to be contrarians. They are pariahs. Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald. So that's interesting. So, Matt, you think you think that among Ezra's contributions, if you want to call it that, is that he basically neutered the impulse to contrarianism and internal debate as a virtue in left liberal circles. He himself is the perfect embodiment of a kind of nicely streamlined, smooth, coherent body of safe earnestly held, but safe left liberal opinions without the prickliness of any contrarian opinions that stick out. Your gloss would be slightly less charitable than what I would intend <laughs> to do, but um, he embodies more than, than anything else. You're absolutely right that in some ways he embodies, and maybe this is not your particular gloss, but I think it's a fair inference, the end of the contrarian impulse within liberal media as Absolutely. a virtue, as a, and that so many of the people who made, you know, the fact that Christopher Hitchens was writing for The Nation, and the fact that there were right-wingers and far-left-wingers writing for The New Republic, and the fact that Seth Lipsky could found The Forward, which was a, a paper whose staff was way to the left of him, but they respected him as a conservative editor. That whole thing where, like, everyone has a house contrarian or three, and that's a good thing, is, is completely dead. And one reason it's dead is because of the internet, which and, and because of polarization, which Ezra is the poet of in his book. But also, I'm now realizing it's also dead because he, there was a, a model of new journalist who came up who wasn't interested in it as the mode to operate in and wasn't interested in channeling it and felt that, I guess, it had led to the Iraq war. That was probably its great sin, yep. right? And so, and Ezra was, was first among equals probably in trying to, in moving the blogosphere and the new media away from it and also kind of killing it as the way to be if you were a journalist coming up. And that's that's a shame. That's absolutely correct. One of the interesting aspects of that, and you're right in pointing out the Iraq war element to it, is that Ezra, like Matthew Iglesias, like a lot of the people who at some point decided that the New Republic-style contrarianism was the problem, 
they all supported the Iraq war. <laughs> they were like 22 at the time in fairness or 18 or I don't know what, but they were all in favor of it. So it's, it's like they felt personally betrayed by their own bad decision-making process or their own conclusions shaped in part by the new Republic. And so they vanquished that. And in fact, um, when Chris Hughes bought the new Republic, I believe in the first redesigned issue, with Obama on the cover, there was above the masthead, you know, a little teaser for a story inside was like a Ezra Klein, you know, the Washington power guy. So it's not only that he didn't work for them and that he publicly repudiated them by the time that they got back to their progressive roots and left of center became a boring magazine. They were like, will you please like me, Ezra Klein? That's how the power structure shifted. To your point, Matt, about Ezra being kind of the bellwether, the embodiment of kind of the zeitgeist of the conventional wisdom, I, I think one of the ironies or one of the interesting things is, of course, that shifts at different points. Even though in some sense he, he may have spelled the end or, or was symptomatic of the end of the contrarian journalist in liberal media, when he started, he was an outsider. He was, he was on his own political blog, and then I think he was at the American Prospect, but he was firing darts at the liberal ma mainstream. So at that point, you know, in the early 2000s, in some sense, he was heterodox, or at least he was an outsider. And then he went to work for the Washington Post, and he was a kind of one of the pioneers of, of the kind of data journalism and, and em embodied a lot of the promise of data explanatory journalism. And then that's what Vox was. And that's what Vox was initially. But this was before the Great Awakening, as I think Matt Iglesias dubbed it. So there was another shift kind of in the making. Let's listen to this clip from Ezra's interview slash debate with Sam Harris, the well-known writer, podcaster, intellectual, dark web personality, Latter-day Christopher Hitchens. Ezra's interview with Sam came not too long after Sam had hosted Charles Murray. And Murray, for those of you who don't know, was the author of a very controversial book called The Bell Curve that dealt at least in part with supposed genetic racial differences in IQ. And, and, and Sam had, had to some extent defended Murray or at least defended his, his interest in exploring these very provocative questions and then had come under a lot of criticism from a variety of people, including Ezra, for platforming Murray. And so that's kind of the context for what they're talking about. So what I want to do here, uh, it's not really convince you that I'm right. I don't think I'm going to do that. And it's not to convince you to like me. I don't think I'm going to do that either. I get that. What I want to convince you of is that there is a side of this you should become more curious about. You should be doing shows with people like Ibram Kendi, who's author of Stamp from the Beginning, which is a book on, on racist ideas in America, which mm. won the National Book Award a couple of years back. People who really study how race and these ideas interact with American life and policy. I think the fact that we are two white guys talking about how growing up non-white in America affects your life and cognitive development is a problem here, just as it was a problem in the Murray conversation. And I want to persuade you that, that some of the things that the so-called social justice warriors are worried about are worth worrying about, and that the excesses of activists, while, while very real and problematic, they're not as big a deal as the things they're really trying to fight and to draw attention to. What comes into your mind when you hear Ezra offer up Ibram Kendi and make note of the two white guys? I mean, that was not that was a shift. That was not Vox of 2013. No, it wasn't. And what I want to say about that clip is 
you know, the very cliched way in which Ezra said, look, not only should we be should we bring non-white voices into this conversation, but it should actually be Ibram Kendi, the one non-white voice that is in, being brought into this conversation by everyone for fairly questionable reasons at this particular moment. Part of what's going on with Ezra Klein, and and I, I recognize this because I see it in myself, is an immense desire to be smart but also likable. Hmm. If you get smart enough, and I'm not saying I've ever walked up to that line, but he might, but Klein might. He's smarter than I am. If you get smart enough, you start seeing, you will inevitably see things that if you say them out loud, make you dislikable. Staying smart and likable is a really, really hard trick to pull off. And I will layer on top of that the fact that he himself talks about his tremendous battles with anxiety, um, for which I have compassion, by the way. And so when he wades into stuff like race, you can only imagine that given his desire to be liked and his anxiety, and by the way, also his really noble engagement in the past few years with the thinking of people who are apolitical or anti-political, who I think he would have seen as woo-woo, anti-empirical weirdos when he founded Vox. But given all that, he is going to let some of his own rigor and self-scrutiny lapse when it comes to a question like race. And I think that's part of what you saw with the Sam Harris conversation and part of why he feels it's really necessary to talk to Ibram Kendi and not ask particularly tough questions of someone like Ibram Kendi. Some of Ezra Klein's priors are his personality and his anxieties and his needs. And that's true of all of us. Um, I don't think he's as self-aware of it as as he would like to be. You forced me to be the one who says this about Ibram Kendi, Mark, and not you. But but I, I have a I have a joke, which is that I'm one of the eight people in the country who's actually read Stamped from the beginning, which is Ibram Kendi's kind of five six hundred page book about the history of racism that won the National Book Award. Um, I've read the book. I don't think anybody else has read it. It's not a good book. It has its main thesis, which he's good at articulating, and I I think is an interesting one. But he contradicts it at a million different points throughout the book, and he doesn't seem to notice it. A, I wonder if Ezra Klein is, is one of the other eight people who's read it. Um, but I think it's possible, to your point, Mark, that the, the, the sort of compulsion to be likable and to not forget to say, to not think things that would make him unlikable to many of the people whose sort of good favor he depends on is so powerful that somebody as bright as Ezra Klein, I think it's, it's, it's conceivable that he could actually read that book and come away from it thinking, just essentially not seeing what's right in front of his face. He is always looking for gurus. And mm. I actually don't know, and maybe Matt could say, if he had gurus early in his career, because Charlie Peters and Michael Kinsley were the gurus to all these other people, but he didn't want them for his guru or his mentor. Um, but since then, if you listen to his podcast, which, by the way, I love, I think he's a really good podcaster, you know, his reverence for a Kendi or then a Dave Eggers or then a Marilyn Robinson, George Saunders, I mean, his reverence for them as spiritual advisors who will help take him to a place I mean, how often do we hear in his podcast him saying at the beginning, once you listen to this person talk, you will never see anything the same way again? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, he's looking for someone to lead him. And I guess I'm curious if maybe, Matt, you could say like and, – and lately it's been people like Kendi or Marilyn Robinson who are very different cats. Did he have a guru or a mentor early on? Not professionally. Part of repudiating – the Charlie Peters view, the Marty Perez view of the world was, you know, it's very, it's a youthful thing. Like, I am, I am a son of your world. I'm going to stab you in the eye. And he goes to Washington Post, starts Wonkblog, let us pause to give the man some praise. At some point, he was getting like a third of the Washington Post web traffic. Is that right? Uh, wow. Like, he was wow. just, uh, he created a category. It sounds ridiculous now, but there was a time when it was controversial for newspapers to have in-house weblogs and kind of people who were in between 
uh, news analysts and columnists and whatever. Ezra Klein went in there. He created the category or he helped solidify the category and dominated. That wasn't because of some saintly editor who sat him down and said, son, this is the way that you do it. He just did it. So he did that all the way up to Vox. But in all of that, I don't see evidence of an older figure uh, helping him uh, with the ropes. To your point about giving him his due, because I, I think I've been fairly critical of him so far. And I think the whole framing of this episode is one that's critical in the sense that, you know, it's kind of making the case that he's symptomatic of some fairly negative trends in media. But but let's give the man his due, because I actually think he is extraordinary in various ways. One of them is he's been at the leading edge of various trends. And I don't mean that in a sort of like, he's not a follower, like he's seen where the energy is. And I don't think that's a negative thing. I think that's something like he saw where the energy was with politics. He launched his blog when he was in college and became a name when he was still a college student. As you said, he was a monster at the Washington Post. Vox didn't fulfill its sort of own stated kind of ambition but it became a sort of fairly significant media property. But I'm trying to figure out what the, and I like listening to his podcast. That's another thing I like listening. I think You're he's trying a good to figure out inter- what, what, what his gift is, what his what, special what sauce is. is. His, what is his gift? But I think I'd also put it in the context to, to kind of flip back to the negative somewhat. Like I have an intuition that he's actually not moving in the direction of his gift as strategically or, or even maybe sort of anti-strategically as, as possible, but maybe just start by defining what his gift is maybe better than he understands himself. I find it interesting that at a couple of key moments, he walked away from where the trajectory would have suggested. At the time that I wrote the profile, which is 10 years ago, this is pre-Vox, it seemed obvious that he was going to be the next star at MSNBC. He was a, a fill-in for Rachel Maddow. He would go and do like the wonk minute. You know, I'm going to explain to you the you know Brazilian debt crisis in 60 seconds. Start the timer. He was that guy. Um, and, uh, and he looked good and his wife is beautiful. And, 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 you know, they would, they would sort of like, uh, they would glide and not glisten. Um, and in Washington, uh, for those of us who have had the misfortune of living there or spending a lot of time there, it's, it's, it's a glisten, <laughs> it's a glisten yeah. place, <laughs> a lot of khakis, a lot of sweat, uh, a lot of guys who are 27 and they look like they're 72. And so that's where it looked like he was going and he didn't do it. He didn't chase the immediate obvious Next step, which is, my God, I get to be on TV. I'll, I'll do that all the time. You can make a lot of money that way. I mean, Chris Hayes was the nation's version of Ezra Klein. He was a print journalist, yeah. And a good one um, and an interesting one. And he was interested then much more in soliciting voices of people who disagreed with him. And uh, what happens is that you're at MSNBC, you're captured by your network, you're captured by your audience, and you been to a lot of other, and I say this, uh, someone I'm, I'm fond of Chris and know him well and been on the show many times in the old days, <laughs> it's kind of inevitable where that stuff goes. Uh, Rachel Maddow, I think it was much more interesting 10 years ago than she is now. Um, and so he could have gone that way and he stepped out. It's almost as if he has a sense of, I'm about to be captured. I'm going to uncapture myself. And he did that at Vox, arguably, when Vox was undergoing or had already undergone what has happened in so many just kind of cultural institutions, period, but many media institutions, too, in within a very short period of time, places become intolerable even to the people who found yeah. them. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, Ezra and, and Matthew Iglesias have to kind of leave Vox. Uh, Glenn Greenwald has to leave The Intercept. My God, can you imagine the founders advice? working for modern day vice. No, you cannot. 
holy crap. So a lot of these places have and uh, you know, Marx is old enough, at least among all of us, to remember and probably have uh, written for, as I did, um, Salon. Back when Salon.com yeah, I sure was a, did write for yeah, Salon. I wrote, I wrote for Salon, too. Yeah. Was a contrarian. <laughs> Which still exists. It still exists. Bizarrely exists. Zombie Salon. He finds a way to do that and to then, you know, recenter his own self within the industry and within, you know, follow his own inspirations and intellectual pursuits. I'm in a very weird place right now about the thing that I think Matt correctly identifies about Ezra Klein, which is um, the way that he hops out and gets on to the next thing and doesn't get held in. Because in some ways, he has swung around to where I have been for not my entire career. I've, I'm often a lemming and a follower. But for seven or eight years, I've been saying social media is really toxic. And it's on balance bad. It, it's actually a net loss of utility. Now he's there. I mean, starting sometime about two years ago, it was around the Dave Eggers interview. The trajectory's on right now, and I think we'll stay in for another year or two before he, you know, parachutes out to something else, is exactly the right trajectory as far as Mark Oppenheimer is concerned, which is like move to Santa Cruz, be a stay-at-home dad, raise your kids, and get off the screens. There are a couple caveats to that, one of which is he's deeply conflicted about his Judaism. And in his search for spirituality, he has some awfully weird woo-woo spirituality stuff. Like he allows Marilyn Robinson to go on with her metaphysical gibberish. Wait, can I interrupt you, Mark? Yeah. I have a special Marilyn Robinson clip just for you. And Robinson, for those of you who don't know, is an American novelist who's now in her 70s and who's pretty celebrated, has won most of the big awards and is kind of revered by a lot of people, including former President Obama. Um, But as you'll hear in this clip, Ezra treats her as as more than just a novelist. He kind of elevates her into something more transcendent. This episode was such a pleasure for me. It was so needed right now. It was so needed. Marilyn Robinson is one of probably the greatest uh, living novelists. She uh, wrote Gilead back in the day, which won the Pulitzer Prize. She's written a number of other books, Home, Lila, Homecoming. Her new book is Jack. She's also done a series of beautiful uh, essay collections, and her books just make you a better person. That's probably the simplest way for me to put them. Um, Gilead, like for a lot of people, is simply one of my favorite works. But a lot of her work, um, just she has a quality of being able to see the wonder in the world and being able to believe in its promise, even as being clear eyed about its failures, that it is really inspiring. Right. I mean, I I don't even know what to say about that. First of all, Marilyn Robinson is a good novelist, but she's not as great as people think she is. And she's not as great as people claim to believe she is. Uh, Many of the people claim that she's that great. I don't think have read all of her stuff. And they often will talk about her as a Christian novelist. I don't know if she's Christian in the way they want her to be. And yet, because she will, even though she will describe herself as a fairly traditional Calvinist, uh, secular Jews like Ezra Klein will say that she has access to truths that if it came out of an evangelical Christian Calvinist in the Presbyterian Church, they would say this is reactionary nonsense. So there's a, what he's doing there and what he's done with some of the other kind of people he's taken on as spiritual gurus. He thinks of George Saunders and Richard. He thinks of Richard Powers as a kind of ecological guru, whereas Richard Powers is just a fairly good novelist, right? Is he's he is now trying to replace the religion of the web with a religion of slow living and mindfulness, and of course he's a meditator also, and I think that it's actually really it brings him closer to some things that I think are correct and true and meaningful, and yet you know he'll never have on an actual Jew or an actual practicing Catholic priest or someone who's made a life out of these truths. It's always someone who like is kind of gets to them through their fiction or something, which which somehow is more palatable to a secular elite 
empiricist mindset. And so it's, I almost feel bad for him when I hear him saying that Marilyn Robinson's books make you a better person, which is something no novelist would ever claim for their own work and would probably uh, abjure. I think that that uh, suggests where he's going to be in 10 years then. In this part of the searching and and looking for the answers, eventually the place to go is the obvious one that was there all along. He's going to go to Israel, as I was earlier uh, a, month, <laughs> a month ago, and uh, and say, "My God, they're onto something. <laughs> they're onto something." These Jews are. He actually has at one point he's talking. I think it was to Dave Eggers, and he says something like. I think it's so amazing the way that you slow down and you've actually made a practice of once a week slowing down and treating it as a day when you're not doing other things like work. And it, it, it's amazing that you've come up with this. I don't remember if it's Eggers or whatever. It's like, I'm listening to this. I'm like, you don't even know you're describing Shabbat. Like you literally don't even know that that's what you're doing. I want to say something else about Ezra, and this will sound mean, but I don't mean for it to sound mean, which is I don't get the sense – he may be a, personally a very funny guy. He's not someone who laughs a lot on his shows. And one thing that I see Jewish writing is doing is always being a little bit uh, self-deprecating, not taking itself too seriously, it, maybe not tongue-in-cheek about the subject, but at least tongue-in-cheek about oneself which is different from being kind of humble or self-deprecating. It's saying like, yeah, I think I'm great, but also you could tell me that I'm full of shit and that would be fine. Nobody on Ezra Klein's podcast ever says, well, you're just full of shit. That's just, that's just ludicrous. And then they, there's none of that sense of that we're all friends here and therefore we can be really harsh, funny, unpredictable. They are very controlled spaces in a way that we at Tablet behind closed doors would say is super goyish. Like this is sort of, this is Marilyn Robinson's Protestantism is like, we'll all be quiet and we'll pass the, the speaking wand. And when you get your turn, you say something. <laughs> and then it's like, I mean, kind of what I wanted Ezra Klein and Sam Harris to do was just start punching each other because that's what they wanted to do. Right. You know, so it's like, where's the mirth? Where's the, um, and Iglesias always seemed to be like a little, like he'd mix it up a little bit more. Um, a little more intellectual brawling as a kind of good being striven for is, is it, it's interesting to, to put Ezra Klein against that tradition. There is something about the even temperedness and the decency of it all that is both admirable, but also sometimes feels like a, a little bit desiccating or a little bit of a limit. It's, it's a bit suffocating. I mean, the two clips that you've played so far, and I don't listen to his podcast, I don't listen to anybody's podcast. Sorry for everybody. <laughs> it sounds so precious like everything is delicate. I, I, I'm suffocating by the the, the two minute mark, and that's not a, that's not a feeling that I enjoy. Um, and again, he's an embodiment of where a lot of left of center opinion journalism is. There's this sort of like treatment, even if he's intellectualizing, uh, exploring aspects of it, which he definitely is, and kind of always has. But he also is putting Ibram X. Kendi up in this special place over here. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to get my voice down here and talk about it. And it's like, Jesus Christ, dude, can you have some fun here? Um, and and don't treat things with this kind of suffocating kind of preciousness. I have one more clip, and and it's of the interview that Ezra did recently with Michael Brendan Doherty, who's the an editor at National Review. I picked this clip because I think it's actually Ezra at his best, and it kind of leads into. I'll explain why in a sec, but it leads into kind of the last question I have for you guys. So I want to note something in that answer which is it very quickly Kevin McCarthy vanished into complete nothingness at the center of it. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> like you begin, that's right. There's a, a sense of him as smoke. I mean, I've, I've heard this before. People start talking about him and very quickly they'll just be talking about something else. In that clip, 
He's funny. He's kind of eloquent. And Ezra at his best, and this is interesting to me, is talking about politics. I think he's really, you know, has an enormous amount of experience reporting. Uh, I think he has a lot of great sources. I think he understands the mechanics of politics and power exceptionally well. And I think it's interesting that one of the things he hasn't done with his career, at least in its latest iteration, but it seems increasingly the case, is go down into that passion and that expertise. Hmm. Um, so when I say like, you know, I worry about Ezra a little bit, or I say something like, I don't know if he knows what he's best at. That's part of what I'm talking about. And I think that's a challenge for any of us who are trying to make a career or even a, a side hustle as a journalist or a writer or a podcaster is knowing where we're good, knowing where our sort of passions and our neuroses intersect with our capacities to produce something that is like, you know, would rise to that threshold that Mark was talking about of actually being talent, of actually being something that you can put out in the world that other people want to engage with. So this leads to kind of my last question, which is where is Ezra Klein in 10 or 15 years? If you had to, if you had to move him forward and imagine where he would be, you know, based on kind of some of the observations we've made, where is he going to be? And I guess also you'll probably be saying something about where, where the scene will be. You know, if he holds on to his antenna for where things are. So, Matt, I, I don't know. What do you, where, where's, where's Ezra going to be in 15 years? Who's he going to be like? What's he going to be doing? I, I see uh, him, and apparently he's already going there. I would say that he's going to go in the direction of Arthur Brooks, who's the former head of the American Enterprise Institute. So, the AEI, for those who are uh, n- not aware, they're like basically the aircraft carrier of, of conservative Washington think tanks and, under Arthur Brooks's leadership, Arthur, who I think was never a Republican, he always made sure that you understood that his background was different, that he played the French horn in an orchestra, and he has nice little Cuban heels on his shoes, just sort of different than that. But nonetheless, in the Bush era, helped to turn that place from an aircraft carrier to an entire fleet in terms of the amount of money that it raised during a time of war. And what does Arthur Brooks do for an encore after doing this and after exiting? It's all about like hanging out with the Dalai Lama and pursuing happiness and talking about how being middle-aged is actually a blessing and not a curse and uh, and kind of doing this. And it's a really interesting next act for him as much as everything out of my voice sounds like I'm resenting him, which <laughs> I kind of do. Um, but uh, that is a natural place to go for someone who was in the middle of the thing but also has a gift of gab, a genuine, real uh, gift of communicating ideas, which Arthur Brooks absolutely does. I saw him give a talk uh, early in this happiness phase of his of his career, talking about the issue of contempt in uh, marriages and how to stay happy and all this. And it was I I remember it. it. It like has stuck with me. It was so good. Ezra has that ability. He can distill information in a way. I mean his it. it the explanatory journalism isn't necessarily I'm explaining what the truth is. Explanatory journalism from from him, the actual gift, is that he's just a really good communicator of – it might be traditional, it might be non-traditional, but he can com- distill and communicate an idea really, really well. Um, so where do you go after you've gone away from power, after you've gone away from being the center of attention in a big media company and these kind of ambitions and you go, you go more narrow – I think he's going in the direction that is the direction that he is going. Um, It's going to be more personal. It's going to be more how do you organize your life in such a way to maximize happiness, to detach. I would I would expect it to be way more uh, personal, reflective and always compelling. Always. Mark predictions. 
I, I think we're kind of aligned on this. I mean, he's he's signaling where he's going. I think the real question is, I would only problematize that, Matt, by saying he's so young. Right. He's 38. I think that's a good for like a fifth. I mean, Arthur Brooks is probably in his 60s, right? Which also you'd say for David Brooks, who's in also an interesting second or third spiritual act. Yeah. But Ezra's 38. And by the way, six foot two. That's just that. That's just no, wrong. That's, that's just that's, unfair. That, that motherfucker six yeah. two. Are you sure about that, Dan? I went. I'm not sure. On I that. mean, that was the only that was the only height I found online. I thought of him <laughs> as like a five nine, five nine, right. five ten typer. A tasteful yeah. five nine. A sort of elegant five nine. But when you're 38 and you're carrying buckets of money and you've kind of already bought and sold your startup and made all your fame and seems to be okay with that doesn't see i mean he's obviously in the conversation he's at the times but he doesn't seem to need to be the the most cited person anymore for 10 years he'll read novels and bring them onto his podcast artists as gurus and he'll think about mindfulness and slowing down which is all to the good but then what at 48 because he's nothing if not restless and i actually have no good answer to that so i'm gonna i think i'm gonna sort of half agree with you guys or mostly agree with you but cast a different light on it when I think about Ezra projected forward, where I go is it's not quite in the sort of Arthur Brooks sphere, which sounds a little bit more freelance. It's imagining him as, alas, I I hate to say it, Thomas Friedman. I mean, I don't know if you read Ezra's recent piece on Twitter in the Times, but it was very Friedman-esque. It was very like trying to find this sort of cross-cutting synthesis, quoting a lot of people he just talked to who apparently have wisdom in some respect, but kind of being utterly sort of forgettable and unmemorable. I I couldn't for the life of me tell you what it was that he said. So I I think where he's headed is towards just being a kind of, if he doesn't catch himself before it's too late, and maybe this is the different light I'd cast on. I think it'd be really a shame. I, I think that what you're talking about, the space that Arthur Brooks is in, hanging out with the Dalai Lama, talking about finding happiness and and being contemplative and the better things in life, I think to go back to the question of talent, that is phenomenal if you're one of the few people who can write about that or talk about that interestingly. The, I think as we as we all know, the vast majority of people who talk about that stuff are either boring or they sound like hucksters. Whatever texture it is you need, whatever specificity and particular insight you need to be able to talk about those things interestingly, it doesn't seem evident to me that that's where Ezra's talents lie. You know, and, and to a point you made earlier, Mark, you know, when he's interviewing Marilyn Robinson, who I haven't read, but when he's interviewing George Saunders, who I have read and who I love and who is all about specificity and 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 there's a lot of edgy stuff in his writing, he, he brings out the most sort of general, nonspecific, 10,000 feet high TED Talk wisdom in George Saunders as well. So if Ezra goes down that path, and I think I agree with you guys that it's likely, I I think it's actually a loss for the world of journalism. And and if I can be presumptuous, I think it's a loss just personally for the development of Ezra Klein, because I think there's somewhere else to go. And it has to do with getting more in touch with what are his specific gifts and where can they be sort of put to use most interestingly and compellingly in the world. Can Can I tell you where I think they are? I've been so critical of him when he brings on fiction writers and turns them into gurus. Yeah. And I will stay critical of him for that. And I almost, I, I'm, I'm very conflicted about whether I want him to bring on actual, you know, rabbis, priests, because it might actually, his head might fall off. He might not be ready for that. <laughs> but what he is very good at 
is bringing on people like psychologists and neuroscientists and people who are not as political as you want him to be. They're still working in the empirical vein. They're still working from real data. And he is exceedingly good, to, again, to go back to Matt's discussion of him, as a communicator. He's very, in the Malcolm Gladwell sense. He is yeah. one of those people who will read the 10 books for us that were frankly are too dense and difficult for us to read. And will then bring the person on for not just an hour, but 80 or 90 minutes. And, and by the end of it, you feel you've learned what that person, the interview subject has to give. And I think that, you know, if he's smart, what I would say is he'll realize his gift is to be Regis Philbin or Studs Terkel or one of these people who finds their metier and does it for 40 or 50 years. And and my fear is that, again, the restlessness will get to him. But I guess I don't need him to go as deep wonk as you need him to go. I think there is actually a place in which he's interviewing philosophers, scientists and stuff. And he's uh, who's who's better at that? Probably someone at BBC Four whom I've never heard of. Yeah. Well, let's end on that relatively optimistic, affirming note on Ezra. And uh, Matt and Mark, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. It's fun. <laughs> 